So it's a real pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Rachel Douglas. She's a lecturer in French and Comparative Literature at the University of Glasgow. Uh, her books include Franck-Cartien and Rewriting, a work in progress, which was published by Lexington in 2009. And of course, The Making of the Black Jacobins, The Theatre of C.L.R. James's History, which is what we're here to celebrate tonight, published by Duke. Rachel works in Caribbean literature and film, uh, with a particular focus on Haiti, and she's also been <coughs> active in the Haiti Support Group. Um, and it's very nice to see also fellow members of Haiti Support Group UK in the audience. So without any further ado, over to Rachel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me here. And um, it's good. There are lots of people here who um, really were with me when I started the project, which was a long time ago. But um, for example, Selma James's son Sam is here. And there's also Adrian Leibovitz at the back and Eve Hayes. Um, so they've all been with me while I've been <laughs> working on this, on this book. And um, the book... Um, the title is actually Making the Black Jacobins, CLR James and the Drama of History, um, because James says in the Black Jacobins, there is no drama like the drama of history. Um, and the book is about the extraordinary journey of Caribbean Marxist CLR James and his famous anti-colonial history, the Black Jacobins. I think one thing to say about the Black Jacobins is that it was first written in 1938, over 80 years ago. But today, this history is still the classic history of the Haitian revolution. So I think that's quite a feat, um, written more than 80 years ago. Um, and also, The Black Jacobins, it, it's, it's a work which is well known, um, but it's, it's not singular, static, and unchanging. So my work is based <coughs> on archival work, and it looks at almost 60 years worth of transformations involved in James's The Black Jacobins. So between 1931 and James's death in 1989, he kept telling and retelling the story of the Haitian Revolution in the form of articles, two different plays, two different versions of the history. And he never stopped rethinking and rewriting The Black Jacobins. So the history is well known, particularly in its 1963 revised edition version. Um, and um, that really helped, it, helped to make it a text of the 1960s. But what's less well known is that James's Haitian Revolution project both started and ended life as two quite different plays. So there's Toussaint Louverture from 1936 and The Black Jacobins from 1967. Some of the 1963 changes made to the original 1938 edition of The Black Jacobins are better known thanks to, thanks to David Scott's, I don't know if you know his book, um, Conscripts of Modernity, um, which reads mainly through one set of added paragraphs to make wider arguments about the tragedy of post-colonial presents and futures and anti-colonial um, uh, romance. So my book tells the story of the writing of the Black Jacobins itself and follows the revision trail as James's Haitian Revolution story morphs from a 1931 article invoking leading Haitian revolutionary Toussaint Louverture through his 1936 play Toussaint Louverture um, and then also there's the influence of his um, years in the US. Um, he, was part, he, he was founder of the Johnson Forest tendency um, in the 1940s and 50s. So those were very important, influential years in the US. Um, and then there's the revised 1963 edition of the history, and then the 1967, the Black Jacobins play. And then I also tried to look at some of the, what we can call the afterlives of the Black Jacobins, so how the Black Jacobins has lived on beyond and since James himself. So I think James and the Black Jacobins, they really helped to change the narrative about Haiti. And ever since, um, to change the narrative about Haiti, Haiti's quite often talked about as a, as a terrible place where bad things happen. And um, James always 
presented Haiti's revolutionary past as a success story. Um, and um, following the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, Haitian-American artist anthropologist Gina Athena Ulysse called for new narratives of Haiti and for people to stop telling the same old negative stories about the place. And someone who tried to rewrite the old stories about Haiti already back in the 1930s was CLR James. So what first motivated James to write The Black Jacobins? James says it was this, I was tired of reading and hearing about Africans being persecuted and oppressed in Africa, in the Middle Passage, in the USA, and all over the Caribbean. I made up my mind that I would write a book in which people, in which Africans or people of African descent, instead of constantly being the object of other people's exploitation, would, um, and I think there's a typo there, would themselves be taking action on a grand scale and shaping other people to their own needs. So what James outlines in the statement is his conscious decision to shift the dominant voice of Caribbean history telling from passive to active. So action is central to how any history is perceived. History can either be seen as events that befall us, always from elsewhere, or as things we do use or make ourselves. And particularly in the context of what Jamaican poet and scholar Edward Ball has called the Caribbean quarrel with history, this active versus passive historical outlook is the crucial dividing line when it comes to representing the Haitian Revolution 1791 to 1804 and the Caribbean past. Um, so this is his first, the first time he invokes the revolutionary Toussaint Louverture in a 1931 article. And from the very beginning, it was a dialogue, a two-way dialogue, and can be seen as part of what Ball calls the quarrel with history. Um, so this was this article mentioning Toussaint Louverture was a 1931 article response piece in a Trinidad journal, The Beacon. And James used Toussaint to respond to the pseudo-scientific racism of a certain Dr. Sidney Harland, an English scientist based at the Imperial College of Tropical Agriculture in Trinidad. And he had written a previous article titled Race Admixture. And so we have in this response a very exasperated CLR James um, who says that he would have preferred to write about Toussaint Louverture, but instead he has to respond to, to Harland. Um, and in James's 1931 response piece titled The Intelligence of the Negro, A Few Words with Dr. Harland, James already quarrels with Harland. And what he does is he sketches out a biographical portrait of Toussaint, and this clearly prefigures his longer biographical history of Toussaint that is the Black Jacobins. Um, and James, in, in this article, James is very much an action man. And um, James often wrote about action men. And there were relatively few references to women in his work. Um, and Toussaint is presented as the ultimate action man whose actions are piled high in a quick fire fashion. Um, so he's leaping from action to action. Um, so action is not only the subject of the biographical passage, it's also a key constitutive feature of the means of representation. So James's Haitian Revolution history writing, it's always a quarrel using Toussaint to write back to negative misrepresentations of the Haitian Revolution. And um, the Black Jacobins' history isn't necessarily, it's, it's not, it's not really set out like a, a quarrel, like the, the article, but it is. Um, and what he's doing is he's, he's, he's writing back to negative misrepresentations by the likes of T. Lothrop, Stoddard, J.A. Froud, and others. So references throughout the 1938 edition to the Black Jacobins make it clear that James's history is written to counter deliberate acts of silencing, manipulation, suppression, and falsification in some historical narratives of the Haitian Revolution. So James explicitly says in his 1938 bibliography, 
Unfortunately, suppressio veri and suggestio falsi are not the only details to be contended with. Hard experience has taught the lesson that it is unwise to take anything on trust, and an examination of even apparently bona fide quotations with reference duly attached has unearthed some painful mistakes of unscrupulousness. So when James writes the Haitian Revolution as a tremendous success story, he writes back to Stoddard. So Stoddard presents the events as nothing more than a, a race war, which is ultimately a failure. Um, and so Stoddard writes about the Haitian Revolution as if it's a sort of unsuccessful. And he doesn't even say it's a revolution, a, a revolt. Um, so Marxist James, his emphasis is always on class as well as race, in sharp contrast to pro-white Stoddard. And James uses history as a tool for rewriting and challenging misrepresentations of the revolution as he writes back to the type of history writing that has served to deprecate, objectify, and dehumanize black people on the basis of race. So James's The Black Jacobin's History is his polemical reply to one particular history by Stoddard, and James deploys multiple footnotes and also his annotated bibliography <coughs> to really dismantle Stoddard's racialist arguments. So countering such historical misrepresentations is really a major aim of James's history writing in The Black Jacobins. So James directly counters what he calls the professional whitewashes of history and Tory historians and Regis professors like Harlan, Stoddard and also Froude. And Froude would go on to become Regis Professor of History at Oxford University. And one crucial source of inspiration for James was very clearly the 1899 famous book-length rebuttal by black Trinidadian schoolmaster John Jacob Thomas, which was aptly titled Fraudacity, Fraudacity, West Indian Fables Explained. And it writes back to English historian Froude's notorious 1888 Caribbean travelogue, um, well, yeah, his travelogue. So Froude presents the Haitian Revolution also as a sort of failure which owed any partial success to the yellow fever outbreak. James himself, in 1969, would pen an introduction to Thomas's fraudacity, and he's correcting at length the person who he calls fraudacious Mr. Froud. Um, so um, in, there's, um, in the introduction, the 1969 introduction to fraudacity, James literally rewrites every one of Froude's sentences um, about Haiti from a single page of Froude. And he's, James is transforming each one from passive to active voice. And James makes clear that it was not yellow fever, but freedom fighting which won the Haitian Revolution. So from the start, James's explicit focus on Toussaint Louverture was a response to the historiographic silencing, um, erasure, disavowal, banalization, trivialization of the Haitian Revolution. And much later in 1995, um, Haitian anthropologist Michel Rolf Trouillot would outline a process of silencing of the Haitian Revolution. So as Trouillot has argued, this silencing is an active and transitive process, so something that is actively done to someone or something else at all stages of the production of history. And he says that there are four crucial moments of fact creation. So fact creation, making sources, moments of fact assembly, making archives, moments of fact retrieval, making narratives, and then the moment of retrospective significance, which is making history in the final instance. So James um, and his own making of history and drama is an equally active and transitive reverse process of unsilencing the past. And um, James tried to represent the unrepresentable, so all the, the silences and gaps in colonial archives, which had normally been written from the colonizers' point of view. 
Um, James wrote back to all these negative tales with his Haitian success story, writing new pages into the book of history. And Louverture is really his prototype for actively making history, and then he builds on the bare bones of Toussaint's biography that are sketched out in James's 1931 article. So James had his political awakening in um, Britain, in Nelson, Lancashire, and um, he, he had what he describes as a very hard reading of Marx and Trotsky there, and he increasingly politicizes his deployment of Toussaint, and he uses the Haitian Revolution for vindication purposes as a great success story and as a vehicle for fighting against fascism, uh, the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in the 1930s, and the Spanish Civil War. And James himself memorably describes how, on coming to England in 1932, it was as if fiction writing, because he wrote one novel, Minty Alley, it was as if fiction writing drained out of him and was replaced by politics when he became a Marxist and a Trotskyist. But maybe the, the emphasis on fiction um, is slightly misplaced because fiction implies a strong tendency to untruth, to make up something. But drama is, the book argues, a special literary category that would appeal to a fundamentally political person like James. So James wrote in The Black Jacobins, there is no drama like the drama of history. And for a political person like James, the, I think the turn to drama is significant. Drama has been described as second cousin and handmaiden to politics, the most public of the arts, and as one of the acts of presentation and representation, like photography, that have a privileged access to truth. And this intrinsically political role of theatre as a representing machine connects it with action as long dead characters and past events from long ago can be brought to life by flesh and blood actors who perform these deeds in the present tense of theatre's liveness as if they're happening right now. So with James's pieces of political theatre, the purpose is both to enact politics and revolution, and then also to provoke the audience to do politics and revolution in their turn. And in um, my analysis of the plays, I look at how James continued to write drama and write about drama and think about it until his dying days at the end of the 1980s. So scholarship on CLR James's drama was really um, kick-started by Christian Hogsberg's discovery of the Hull manuscript in the 2000s of James's Toussaint Louverture play. And then it was published, a critical edition of it was published in 2013. And um, so I've looked at a few different play scripts of, of the play and added a comparative dimension to the mix. Um, and compared multiple scripts of the 1936 play and the 1967 play. Um, and no doubt, because of the way that James worked, did his political work, um, he, was, he was important politically on, on so many continents of the world, and um, one incarnation of the, the Johnson Forest tendency later was correspondence, and they would write letters to one another. And so... Um, Actually, the percentage of, of James's work that's, that's been published is, is quite a, a small fraction. So I'm, I'm sure that there are going to be other, um, ver, you know, other play scripts that are going to emerge. Um, so Toussaint Louverture is the main revolutionary in the first play. And he appears in that first play. It's really almost... It's, it's all about him. He appears in all but one scene after his death, and even in that scene, he's invoked at length. And in the 1936 Toussaint play, Paul Robeson, the great African-American actor, singer, and um, civil rights activist, played Toussaint in London. Um, so this was March 1936, and there were only two performances of the play. 
So in terms of refiguring the revolutionary, James privileges Toussaint as the ultimate personification of the Haitian revolution. But even in the 1936 play, the focus on Toussaint is offset by what we could call a chorus of ex-slaves. So they undergo a radical transformation from being, and I'm quoting, naked, wearing either a loincloth or a shirt, dirty and unkempt, to forming a solid mass who in dress and bearing are civilized people. So already here in the 1936 play, the masses function as a chorus and James brings crowds of ordinary slaves into view. So James's own deployment of Toussaint is mobile and he responds to different sets of circumstances, including the US occupation of Haiti, 1915 to 1934, the era of decolonization, the collapse of West Indies Federation, the coming of independence for his native Trinidad, um, and James's disillusionment after his very sharp split with Eric Williams, the first prime minister of independent Trinidad and Tobago. And as James reanimates his Haiti-related tales across the decades, there's a clear process of refiguring Toussaint Louverture. So Toussaint goes from being the all-important central protagonist, um, and he's progressively written out of... Um, of, of James's stories about the Black Jacobins. James gave, in 1971, a lecture that had a tantalizing title, um, which was how I would rewrite the Black Jacobins. So James revealed that were he, to were he to rewrite the Black Jacobins' history now, what he would like to do is give Louverture just a walk-on part. So, of course, you know, Toussaint Louverture, he always plays a much more important role than that of a, a walk-on part in all the incarnations of um, the Black Jacobins. Um, story. But he starts to rewrite his central protagonist, and, um, and certainly his famous history, it plays a key role in turning Toussaint into a global icon, icon and mythologizing him as the Haitian equivalent of Che Guevara. So even with, with the titles, we can see a shift. The title of the first play is Toussaint Louverture. Then the 1938 history turns the emphasis to a wider cast of black Jacobins, um, a wider cast of revolutionary characters. Um, and in the history, uh, the subtitle is Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution. So Louverture is still the only revolutionary to be singled out by name in the title, but he's now, his name is now relegated to the subtitle. Um, and sometimes the title has been skewed with problematic translations when the history has been repackaged for reading publics in other countries. So for example, the Italian translation subtitle, which is very problematic, um, became the first revolt against the white man. And this was, so this was the problematic subtitle of Feltrinelli's 1968 Italian edition, which was retained for the 2006 Derive Prodi Italian edition. And according to original translator Raffaele Petrillo, this was a commercial decision to win the book More Italian Readers. But this changed subtitle is just plain wrong because the point that James keeps making again and again throughout the pages of the Black Jacobins is that the enslaved revolted for as long as there was slavery um, from the very beginnings of slavery. And so the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, was very far from being the first slave-led revolution against white men ever. So um, James did actually rewrite the Black Jacobins um, as a history and a play. But in his 1971 lecture, James says that were he to rewrite um, again completely his history, he would like to base the Black Jacobins on a completely different type of source. So he says, rather than focus on accounts by white, French, and British army generals and planters, he, would, he says he would instead focus on sources much closer to the ordinary slaves themselves. And what makes this difficult 
is that ex-slaves left hardly any written records of their own. So James's 1971 rewriting lecture makes references to Marxist history from below perspectives in French revolutionary historiography from Georges Goudet and Albert Soboul and others. And I think it's significant that James and Goudet, they co-supervised what would become the study of the Haitian Revolution from Below by Carolyn Fick, Making Haiti the Sandomang Revolution from Below, published in 1990. So when James rewrites the history, he does so between the lines in long footnotes or at the beginnings and ends of chapters. And the type of rewriting he outlines in the 1971 article would involve completely rewriting the Black Jacobins' history and basing it on very different sources. And I think there's one um, academic who has described the Black Jacobins as being almost the opposite of Carolyn Fick, almost the opposite of history from below. Um, but, um, and, and, and she, this academic argues that, you know, he focuses mainly on the big revolutionaries, the, the Toussaints, the Dessalines, the Christophs, but we do see him move the spotlight further downwards towards more popular leaders, including Toussaint's adopted nephew, Moise. And as James says in, um, in the Black Jacobins history, what exactly did Moise stand for? We shall never know. And in a 1955 letter to the Haitian historian Etienne Chalier, James writes, I notice that there is still very little precise to put one's hands upon in the history of Moise. He is the man of the minor figures who interest me the most. I hope that one day something will turn up. Um, so he never did completely redo his primary research, but Moise goes from being completely absent in the first 1936 play to becoming a major protagonist in the Black Jacobins 1967 play. And there he represents a more popular type of leader alongside those whom the big leaders like Dessalines, Christophe, Toussaint, they call um, brigands very dismissively. So James uses the resources of drama to write in alternative protagonists of whom there's little archival trace. And normally, plays don't come with their footnotes scrolling alongside the bottom. So he starts to show, in, particularly in the second play, that there are really Haitian revolutions, plural, within the Haitian revolution. And that you can get big revolutionaries like Toussaint pitted against the masses and fighting for almost different <coughs> goals. And the whole second play, it hinges on Toussaint's sentencing to death of his adopted nephew, Moise. Um, so this, it's really a showdown. He calls it the showdown with Moise scene. And it's the epicenter of the play in which Toussaint's flaw is most magnified. And Moise is really like um, James's political spokesman. He's a powerful political organizer. And we see him translating the written word for the masses who are illiterate. So Moise's role is to communicate effectively with crowds of ordinary people. What's also interesting in um, the second play, the 1967 play, is that there's a female equivalent of Moise. And this strong female role is given to a character called Marie-Jeanne, a light-skinned courtesan who becomes Dessalines' wife, actively fighting alongside her husband and uh, alongside her husband in the revolution. In the programme, James described Marie-Jeanne as the sexual target of all sections of the population in San Domingo. But the director of um, the 1967 play, Dexter Lindersey, added, but she is much more besides. In a scribbled note, Lindersey said, hope you don't mind the addition to her description. You've written into her character so much more than a sexual target. 
So that second play, The Black Jacobins play, was premiered in 1967 at the University of Ibadan during the Nigerian Civil War. Wole Soyinka, the Nigerian playwright and poet, he had been the, um, the first African director at the School of Drama at the University of Ibadan. And Soyinka was arrested in 1967 and imprisoned by federal authorities and accused of pro-Biafran activities. So in Soyinka's absence, James's fellow Trinidadian, Dexter Lundesey, became director of the School of Drama, and the premiere of The Black Jacobins was in December 1967. And um, in the archives, there are the, the fragile blue airmail sheets which shuttle back and forth between Ibadan, Nigeria, and James's home in London. And this was a lively dialogue, and there were some heated debates. Um, so the, the, the piles of manuscripts and typescripts, they're taped and paper clipped together with alternative scenes, and then alternative alternatives of the scenes, and then they've got James's scrawl all over handwriting, distinctive scrawl over them. There are many layers of, of changes. Um, so James continued to rework the play, proposing alternative scenes and then the alternative alternatives until mid-November when an exasperated Lindersey exclaimed on the 14th of November 1967, I couldn't possibly use a new scene now. So um, was bitterly <coughs> disappointed by one scene, by, by one cut in particular. Lindsay point blank rejected James's epilogue, to which James was very attached. The epilogue was designed to be updatable according to contemporary circumstances and political situations. And it fast forwards to the present day. Initially, the epilogue was explicitly set in the present day Caribbean, and direct reference was made to the recent breakup of the West Indies Federation about which James was bitterly disappointed. He was a very big supporter of West Indies Federation. Um, and in this Caribbean version of the epilogue, the Caribbean's new modern day political leaders are wearing suits and they're presented as reincarnations of their Caribbean revolutionary forebears with the same actors playing the roles. Um, so these references would later be made less Caribbean specific and more universal in subsequent versions of the epilogue. So this epilogue about West Indies Federation and the need for unity would have maybe had, if it had been performed in Nigeria, in civil war-torn Nigeria, it would have had other resonances, um, perhaps, because um, one catchy slogan of the federal authorities in Nigeria was to keep the nation one is a task that must be done, so preaching unity under which lurked killings. So the other revolutionaries in this epilogue are suit-clad bureaucrats who hollow out all the symbols of independence. But Moise is now a principled political organiser. He delivers a rousing speech. Um, but when his speech is made more universal, the director, Dexter Lindersey, describes it, criticises it, describes it as platitudinous and says that it doesn't really say anything. Um, but one alternative for the epilogue really echoes James's own cry when he stood for election in Chunapuna, where he was born, with his workers and farmers party in the 1960s, which called for, um, like Moise, the redistribution of land out of foreign hands. He says, we must get, we must get the land back. So apart from James himself, Others have updated the Black Jacobins for our times. What are the afterlives of this famous history and how has it lived on beyond and since James? Um, this was the hardest bit of the book to write because you know it, it, it kept growing arms and legs and there's so many, you know, there's, it, I could have spent the rest of my life writing it. Um, and um, the Black Jacobins continues to be very influential and as Gad was saying, before this, he was saying, and it becomes ever more influential. And um, so um, originally, my, my section on afterlives was an epilogue. 
Um, but it, it grew and grew, so I couldn't really call it an epilogue anymore, and now it's a, a chapter. Um, so I had to, and I had to be really ruthless and keep cutting it back. Um, but one of the things I talk about in the, in the final afterlife section of the book is translation, and I've already mentioned the Italian translation of the book in 1968. Um, another very important translation was the French translation, because this allowed the uh, Les Jacobins Noirs to travel back to Haiti, to the land of its inspiration, Haiti itself. So one thing to say about the French translation, it was by Pierre Naville. In many ways, it was a terrible translation, many aspects of it. Um, it was, um, Pierre Naville was a Trotskyist like James. He was also an early surrealist. Um, and um, Naville gives the wrong name. He gets James's name wrong in, the, in, the, um, in his preface. He calls him PIR James instead of CLR James. <laughs> and um, he also gives the wrong information about James's place of birth. He says that he was born in Jamaica, but he was born in Trinidad. And, um, but I guess one thing we need to remember is that Pierre Naville was writing this preface um, under, in France, during World War II, under the occupation of the Nazis. So you know, it, it was a, a difficult time. But the other thing about the book is um, the 19... 49 French edition also gives a list of works by the author, but the author in question is Naville and not James. Um, so Naville's translation was published in 1949 by uh, Gallimard. Um, by Gallimard, and Gallimard are the, the prestigious French publishing house. Um, and um, it really made it a landmark publication. Um, Naville's 1949 preface, it comes out in 1949, um, it updates James's pre-war 1938 history and it, it reframes it just after the World War II watershed for France's colonies. And Naville takes the Black Jacobins to events happening in France and Algeria. Um, and also, um, this had a big impact in Haiti. Um, so I, I quoted the Haitian historian Etienne Charlier um, previously. They had a correspondence, and um, Michel Rolf Trouillot described James's Les Jacobins Noirs as opening up Marxist historiographical vistas um, in, in Haitian, in, in Haiti itself. Um, and it, it had a major impact in Haiti. James himself referred to it as a sort of Bible in Haiti. And um, James had um, a correspondence with quite a number of Haitian intellectuals. Um, and he very nearly went to Haiti in 1958. Um, so he corresponded with Félix Maurice Oloua, uh, René Despest, who was in Cuba, and Jean Brière. Um, but he does not seem to have traveled to Haiti, although he does in, in, in um, a transcript of a conversation he has with his personal assistant, Anna Grimshaw, which is in Columbia Archives. He says something about Haiti. He says, I went there once. It was not a place to go and stay. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, there, there's no other indication that he went to, to Haiti. I don't know. Um, so... Um, and then another place where the Black Jacobins had an impact was apartheid South Africa, where clandestine copies of chapters were made and distributed for discussion. And I think this was precisely the type of serious discussion that James wanted the Black Jacobins to provoke. Um, also, there were stagings of um, the second play, also important afterlives, the first 1936 play was only ever performed twice, and its play script was not discovered until the 21st century. But there have been important productions of the second play. So one was in 1986, and it was by Yvonne Brewster. She was the director. It was a major 1986 production featuring a vast cast of 23 actors and a total crew of 46. So this was the maiden production of Talawa Theatre Company, Britain's first black theatre company, which is still going today. 
And these performances coincided with the ousting of um, Jean-Claude Baby Duc Duvalier, um, which was 7th of February 1986. And a press release presented the eerie coincidences of the Haitian play coming hard on the heels of Baby Duc Duvalier's departure. Another coincidence was that the final performance in 1986 coincided with the 50th anniversary of Robeson's first performance as Louverture. So it was exactly 50 years to the day um, since he played, uh, since Robeson had played the role in 1936. There have been notable Caribbean productions too. Roald Gibbons staged the play in Jamaica in 1975, Trinidad in 1979, and Trinidad again in 1993. And the 1993 production coincided with the specific moments of the 1991 to 1994 coup against Haitian President Aristide. So this was political theatre which galvanised audiences into action by getting them to sign a petition. And then there were actors playing um, the Tonton Marcoutes, you know, the private militia of the Duvaliers, um, who drove the audience out of their seats during the intermission um, and others called on people to act now. The Black Jacobins has also inspired um, lots of, of visual responses too. So this is um, by an artist from Barbados, Ras Akiemai Ramsey, Black Jacobin. Um, and someone else um, who comes back to CLR James a lot in her art is Lubaina Himid, who won the 2017 Turner Prize. And she keeps responding in her works to James's representation of Tucson. For example, there's this cutout figure um, whose boots and breeches are made up of headlines with eye-catching um, eye-catching headlines, um, words like abuse, torture, racist. So always the key source for Himid is the Black Jacobins. And in another work, so this is a series of 15 watercolours, a work called Scenes from the Life of Toussaint Louverture. Himid highlights James's own silences by bringing into view the supporting roles of black female characters. Um, she asks, who cooked, the midday, who cooked the midday meal? Who will do the laundry? Did she, i.e. Toussaint's wife, help with strategy. And she also articulates James's own silence about voodoo. She says, CLR James never mentions voodoo. So the front cover of the book is um, an artwork by the Haitian artist, Edouard Duval Carrier, um, who reclaims the black Jacobins for Haiti and really plays with the idea that Toussaint is a black Jacobin. So building on James, the artist makes Toussaint the ultimate protean figure of possibility. And he's produced a whole series of portraits um, of Toussaint. And um, in, they're in response to the Black Jacobins. So um, the one, I, yeah, I had lots to choose from. I, I went for the pink and gold one. Um, but it's, it's um, there are so many... Um, Duval Carrier, when I spoke to him, said there are so many different images of Toussaint. And one reason for these many faces is that there's no sitting portrait of Louverture, although one has perhaps emerged in the last years. But no one knows for sure what he looked like. Um, so I'm going to conclude now by um, coming back to Gina Athena Ulysse and focusing on the idea of rassemblage. Um, so Gina Athena Ulysse is the one who made the powerful post-earthquake call for new narratives for Haiti. And um, like the French word rassembler and rassemblage, the Haitian Creole word refers to the process of reassembly. And one thing which leaps out of the visual responses to the Black Jacobins is that many of them are mixed media artworks assembled by collage techniques using, for example, in Himid's case, um, cut out pieces from newspapers and different layers in the case of, Ed, of uh, Edouard Duval-Carrier. So according to Ulysse, 
Rassemblage is it can be both process, it can also be product. Um, and the finished artworks are rassemblage, they're visual collages um, that are pieced together through the rassemblage process. And this piecing together process relates back to the history of the Haitian Revolution and the creation of a new country, Haiti, out of the French colony Saint-Domingue, and the creation of new symbols of independence, especially the Haitian flag. So this oil painting is by um, Haitian artist Madsen Montpremier, dating from 1995, and its title is Dessaline Ripping the White from the Flag. Um, so the Haitian flag was created through rassemblage. We see Dessaline take the French flag, rip the white out of the flag, um, and then the new Haitian bicolore flag is literally sewn back together to create the flag for the first black republic. And the woman sewing it together, this is one of the, the women of um, the Haitian uh, revolution who played a key role, Catherine Flon, Dessalines goddaughter, who he commissioned to sew the flag back together. Um, and um, I'm pleased that Nicole Wilson is here. Um, she's just launched a website about femme rebelle, so um, the revolutionary women of the Haitian Revolution. Um, another place where we see the rassemblage process is after the Haitian revolutionary Dessalines' death, when a woman named Marie Sainte Dédé Basile, known as Défilé, another female figure of the Haitian Revolution, is said to have gathered his dismembered body parts into a makout or bag. Um, and then she places the body parts back together piece by piece for burial. Yeah, so as Azulis reminds us, um, rassemblage can mean um, assembly, compilation, regrouping of ideas, things, peoples, spirits. For example, en rassemblage means to do a gathering, ceremony, or a protest. In terms of her work on rassemblage or gathering, Ulysse presents remixing, reworking, and rewriting as necessary. She says, only a remix will do, for performing this revolution will be live. So there are rassemblages in Haiti now, where people are coming together to protest in the streets about the ever-increasing cost of la vie chère, the cost of living, and um, politicians' corruption. Um, rassemblage can also refer to Haitian-style rebuilding after disasters like the 2010 earthquake, Hurricane Matthew in 2016, and now in 2019, not in Haiti itself, but in the Bahamas, Hurricane Dorian has hit the Haitian community in the Bahamas the hardest. The Trinidadian Calypsonian David Rudder wrote, Haiti, we're sorry, we misunderstood you. And in the Bahamas at the moment, anti-Haitianism is rearing its head again, and particularly undocumented Haitian migrants are in limbo, in shelters, have lost everything. So rassemblage can also be a survival tactic. Rassemblage was central to the creation of the symbols of the independent nation. Throughout the Haitian Revolution and when declaring Haitian independence, which was Haitian Independence Day, is the 1st of January 1804, so it's obviously a 1st of January, a, a, a day for new beginnings. Um, and the process of rassemblage helped to reshape the meanings of the French revolutionary motto of liberté, égalité, and fraternité for their own purposes in the context of independence. So at the crux of the whole Black Jacobins project is the Haitian Revolution, which itself is seen as an event that rewrote history, creating an opening like um, Louverture's act of self-renaming. So Toussaint Louverture, um, he was um, originally, originally his slave name was Toussaint Breda, named after the plantation he was on. Um, but he changed his name to Louverture. And people have said different things about the significance of his, of his name, but it means the opening in French and Creole. And um, uh, 
people have said maybe it referred to he had a gap in his teeth. This is what James says in The Black Jacobins. But also um, a French general was said to remark that Toussaint made an opening everywhere in battle. Um, so so this, this name, Louverture, very significant. Um, in notes and dialectics, James commented that a closed book was a vile phrase. So if any closed book is vile, rewriting can be thought of as helping to keep the book of James's Haitian Revolution writings open. And it's a bit like the always open book. So this is his tombstone in Chunapuna, Trinidad. And the quotation on that open book tombstone is from James's Beyond a Boundary um, from 1963, his great book on crickets and colonialism. And I think it's the only book on cricket I've read. But <laughs> very good. Um, and um, I just wanted to conclude by talking about two masters of, of um, Trinidad's Trinidadian Calypso. So Black Sage, Philip Murray, and Short Pants, Llewellyn Macintosh. And they're known for their ex-tempo calypsos. Um, and one that they do is on the subject of CLR James versus Eric Williams. Um, so in his, his unpublished autobiography, James recalls that his former protégé and later um, nemesis, Eric Williams, played a considerable role in looking up references, preparing, and even writing certain lines in the Black Jacobins. Um, so James's recollections of Williams's role as a collaborator on archival research in Paris and his writing of a number of footnotes and passages in the Black Jacobins are filtered through their later sharp split. Um, so Williams is damned with faint praise. At one point in the unpublished um, uh, autobiography, James says, I don't think there's much more to him than that. He's presented as some kind of pen-pushing note writer and fact checker who's capable of collecting and storing prodigious amounts of information in the archives. But James's autobiographical notes do, however, stress that there were really crucial reciprocal influences on the genesis of the Black Jacobins, but also of Williams's um, PhD thesis and then capitalism and slavery um, from 1944. So that's another interesting story. So the ex-tempo calypso style involves improvising witty comments in the moment and challenging each other to a debate where each one riffs on the other's lines. So like the ex-tempoing Calypsonians who have remade James's famous book in their turn, James adds layer upon layer to the Black Jacobins, transforming the work as a whole. Thank you very much.